three years ago, the island town of Amity was the scene of a terrible tragedy. But today, there is a new hotel and the promise of a perfect summer. Now, just when they thought the waters were safe again, the legend continues. guest ray morton the uh esteemed author i would say uh of such great well, books. thank you <laughs> yes you are you are a uh, esteemed in my eyes uh the author of such great books as close encounters of the third kind the making of steven spielberg's classic film uh he did a book on hard day's night and king kong the history of a screen icon uh that um is going for quite a high price these days on ebay i'm noticing uh so uh you know i guess there's still a demand for your king kong book there uh, <laughs> i hope so <laughs> i haven't checked lately but uh, yeah it seems like a new, it's doing a new well. version is coming <laughs> yeah well we're here on this episode to celebrate the 45th anniversary of jaws 2 which is an interesting story behind the making of jaws 2 uh it's not it's heading towards the 46th anniversary, but we, we're, we're not quite there yet. So technically, we still fall within the window of 45 years. And, of course, it was released in July of 1978. And uh, actually, sorry, June 16th. Sorry. I don't know why I said mm -hmm. July. June 16th, 1978. Uh, after a, a lot of um, lead up in the press, as it were, and a lot of anticipation uh, but the story behind the making of it is almost as interesting as the story behind the making of the original film. And we know how troubled that was. Uh, those stories are legend. But I'm going to let you uh, talk us through this a little bit. And uh, I guess we could start where, um, obviously, Jaws was a huge success. And, uh, you know, what, did it, what, what success breeds? Imitation right. or something. <laughs> exactly. Of, let's do more of the same. So uh, that's what they um, they wanted to do. They wanted uh, you know to do another Jaws, and uh, I think Spielberg was uh, not exactly that. That wasn't his first priority. Uh, he, as as we'll learn if we don't know already. But I'll let you tell us about when the first talk of a sequel. Uh, you know when that when that first when those first discussions started, and and what happened after that. 
Sure, sure. Well, obviously, Jaws had come out and was a smash hit from the very beginning, but pretty much by the middle of that summer of 75, it, it was well on its way to becoming, at the time, the highest grossing film of, of all time. And the initial inspiration for the sequel came from Universal, the studio, specifically Sid Sheinberg, who was the head of the of the whole company at that time. Um, in those days, sequels were not, first of all, they were not automatic like they are now. And they were always considered a little bit um, uh, down market, you know, like no no sequel was ever considered you know, a better bet than the than the previous film, with the exception in that time of Godfather Two, of course. But so so the producers, uh, Richard Zanuck and David Brown, right at the top of their mind was not we're going to do a sequel. They were just enjoying the success. But Sid Sheinberg wanted them to consider one, and Universal at that time was probably the studio doing the most sequels, uh, most obviously the airport series, um, you know, which they would uh, churn out every so often. And um, so Sid Sheinberg went to Zanuck and Brown and basically said, you know, I want you to think about a sequel. And they were not actually sure they wanted to do one again, for the reasons I said, sequels were not considered, you know, a classy thing to do in those days. But they kind of realized, because I think Scheinberg made it clear to them, that if they didn't produce it, someone else, he would give it to someone else to produce, because Universal actually owned the property itself. And they didn't want that, because their feeling is, if someone else did it and did a bad job, they'd feel like they had sort of, um, you know, not not done their stewardship of the thing. Um, so they decided that they would take it on, and... Um, so the first thought was, well, what's the story going to be? Because obviously Jaws was based on a novel and there was no second Jaws novel. So it was like, what are we going to do? So the first person they approached to come up with a, a script was Carl Gottlieb, who had done the all of the final drafts and production rewrites on the first Jaws. Um, and he's credited on that film along with Peter Benchley, but the act, there was actually a third writer on the original Jaws, and that was uh, the playwright Howard Sackler, who had uh, written the play The Great White Hope. So that's important because they went to Carl Gottlieb, and I guess whatever money they offered him, uh, he did not consider a good offer after the success of Jaws, and they wouldn't budge on the money, so he turned the, the gig down, so they decided to call Howard Sackler. Um, and uh, uh, Sackler at that time, I believe, lived in Spain, so they had to call him and get him to come over. Uh, and he said to them, well, what do you want? Like, what kind of story do you want to do? And they told him anything that you want to write about sharks. That was that was the brief on it. Um, so he thought about it. And the idea he proposed was to do Quint's story, the Quint's monologue from Jaws about the USS Indianapolis. And he thought it would be interesting to to make a movie about the Indianapolis and that that would be Jaws 2. And for those who don't know, um, if you see Jaws, you know the story. But it's it was a U.S. warship that was sunk uh, by a Japanese submarine. And while the and it was a secret mission because the 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 um, the crew was delivering the atomic bomb that was going to be used on Hiroshima. And um, uh, so because it was a secret mission. Every the, There was no SOS sent, 
And so the sailors were in the water for days and days and days and were attacked by sharks and, and many, many people killed by sharks. So it was um, that was Sackler's idea. And Zanuck and Brown liked it and they took it to Sid Sheinberg. And the famous quote that I've heard that he said is, well, that's a different shirt than we want to wear. And <laughs> yeah. And so uh, Sackler said, well, what shirt would you like us to wear, Mr. Sheinberg? And he said Amity. So they wanted to basically go back to Amity Island and do a sequel with as much of the cast of Jaws as they could as they could put together. And Sackler originally thought, well, that seems kind of boring and conventional. Um, and but then he thought, well, you know, let's give it a shot. So he wrote um, a couple of outlines and a rough draft. And basically his story is the bare bones of what ended up on screen. And, and the thrust of it was uh, that it's four years later. Brody's kids are now teenagers, or at least the, the oldest one is a teenager. And he and his friends are uh, they're sailors and they go out on the boat and then they're attacked by the shark. And um, and and Chief Brody has to save them. And then the second element was Brody keeps seeing evidence of, of shark attacks and nobody believes him. And, and it really becomes like, is this guy paranoid? Is he suffering PTSD? And only at the very end does does he discover that there actually is a shark, and that's when he races to save the kids. The bare bones of that are, is what Howard Sackler put together, um, and and they liked that idea. Um, that was the way they were going to go. And also, the you know this would have been about seventy uh, six when these ideas were coming together, and that's when they were they started to do a lot of teen pictures in that day. So. The idea of combining teen pictures with Jaws seemed like a, a good idea. Um, so they were putting it together, and Zanuck and Brown liked the basic direction it was going, so they needed to bring on a director. Steven Spielberg had no interest. He made that very clear. Again, in those days, doing a sequel was not considered a gig that you would want to do if you'd made a successful picture. And Spielberg, at that point, was knee-deep in Close Encounters, and so he just didn't want anything to do with it. Um, so they went looking for another director. And uh, Sackler had actually worked with a director named John Hancock on a couple of plays because Hancock was a, a film and television director, but he had also uh, been a stage director. Um, and he had made a film a few years earlier that had gotten some pretty good reviews called Bang the Drum Slowly. Yep. Yeah, which uh, which is Robert De Niro, one of Robert De Niro's first really attention-getting roles, and it was a drama about a baseball team and two players who were friends, and one of them gets ill, and and so on. Um, it was well-received picture, uh, and Hancock was considered an up-and-comer, so they had me he had meetings with Zanuck and Brown, and Zanuck and Brown hired him, and so he was going to be the director of Jaws too. Oh, also he had made a. Um, a thriller, a horror film called Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Oh, yeah. So I guess, yeah, that was his um, horror film uh, bona, bona fides, basically. Um, so he was hired to be the director of Jaws 2. And I think people were a little uh, surprised because, he, you know, he didn't have a ton of uh, experience under his belt. But it was pointed out that Jaws was Steven Spielberg's second feature. So he didn't have a ton under his belt either at that time. So they thought it was worth taking a shot. 
uh, Hancock was older. He was, I believe, either in his late 30s or early 40s at this time. Obviously, when Spielberg made Jaws, he was 27, so a little bit of difference there. Um, and then what happened was uh, Hancock was married to Dorothy Tristan, who was an actress, um, and she was a universal contract player uh, in that era. She's in... Um, uh, roller coaster. She plays George Siegel's ex-wife. She was in uh, a movie nobody remembers called Swashbuckler, which was uh, Robert Shaw as a as a pirate, which which was an interesting thing at the time. Um, anyway, I guess John Hancock was not impressed with Howard Sackler's script, so uh, I, I guess he was talking about it with Dorothy Tristan. So she basically took Sackler's script and without telling anybody, like she wasn't commissioned to do it, she basically did a, a, a big rewrite of his script um, and I and turned it into Zanuck and Brown. And when Howard Sackler found out she'd done this, uh, he got ticked off and he quit the project. Um, and it kind of echoes a story that some people may know about what happened when they did All the President's Men. And uh, uh, I guess uh, Carl Bernstein was not impressed with William Goldman's first draft. So he and his girlfriend at that time, Nora Ephron, rewrote uh, William Goldman's script and almost caused William Goldman to quit the project. So uh, apparently that was going on a lot in those days, I guess. People rewriting people <laughs> they weren't supposed to. Um, yeah, so, um, so Sackler left. And I guess Zanuck and Brown liked what Tristan did enough that she became the principal writer of the film. Uh, and they, they cast the film and the plan, they came up with a different production plan, I should say too. Jaws famously was filmed on location at Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Um, they ran into big problems there as everybody who knows the stories about Jaws. Uh, especially with the water and all sorts of things. And, you know, it was filmed off New England, and New England waters are famously very cold. Uh, even in the summer, they're still pretty chilly. So what they came up with was they were going to shoot about three weeks of location footage at Martha's Vineyard in order to reestablish the town and everything. But all of the water stuff, and since uh, most of the water stuff was going to be kids on sailboats out in the ocean. So they didn't need like to, to see land and everything. They decided to shoot all of that in Florida off a town, a town called Navarre beach. And uh, the idea being that the waters would be much warmer. And also it was a more isolated place because one of the other problems when they shot a Martha's vineyard is every time they would get a shot lined up, a sailboat or something would come in the background so they didn't want to be in busy waters either. So the plan was to shoot three weeks in Martha's Vineyard and then go down to uh, Navarre Beach in, and do the rest of the film down there. And um, I guess we can talk. Should we talk about what happened next with the Hancocks? Oh, yeah. I think that's an interesting story uh, for, for sure. Yeah. So Hancock's idea for the movie, and I've, re I've read Dorothy Tristan's script, and it's – it, it bears some resemblance to the film that finally got made, but it's very downbeat. Uh, the whole idea was that um, it took place four years after Jaws and the town has like never recovered. You know, tourists never didn't really come back after the shark attacks. So the town is is 
is basically uh, falling apart. You know, they, there's there's not a lot of business going on, so things are not going well uh, in Amity. And and Hancock's idea was to you know make everything look run down and and beat up, and everybody was going to be kind of you know depressed. Like he had kind of a darker idea for it. And so this, but this whole thing went into production and they, they went up to Martha's Vineyard and they put together, you know, they, they repainted all the houses and things to look, to look run down and sad. And they started to shoot and they were shot for about three weeks. Um, they did a lot of, uh, the location stuff in, in, in the, in the, in the different towns around Martha's Vineyard and they shot, um, they only got, uh, one shark shot and because i guess the shark was uh you know as always not working it's still in the film uh it's one of the best shots in the movie actually it's the one very near the beginning of the film where you see a shark um uh you see a bunch of sailboats in the harbor and they start bouncing up and down and then a shark fin breaks the surface and you realize the shark has arrived in, in the town and uh, they that's the only shot they got of the shark while they were shooting in Martha's Vineyard at that time. Um, anyway, apparently uh, they were not happy at all. Uh, Zanuck and Brown and the rest of the production team and Universal were not happy with Hancock's work. They felt that it was not only gloomy and downbeat, but I spoke to Joe Alves, the production designer and second unit director a few years ago, and he told me that he said even the the framing and stuff was just not good. Uh, he was going for something kind of esoteric and it wasn't, it wasn't landing basically. So after at the three week break, um, they were going to break and then move to the whole company to Navarre beach. And at the end of the three weeks, uh, they fired John Hancock from the film and the whole thing was then thrown into, into doubt because Universal was kind of ready to pull the plug on it, feeling like maybe they had spent too much money and were going in the wrong direction. So then the story of the movie becomes how they how they decided to save it. Yeah, and it's an interesting story because I, I spoke with Joe Alves as well. I think it was uh, 2018 uh, on the occasion of the 35th anniversary of Jaws 3D, which he directed, and I was – uh, you know, I know he had a lot of problems on that, and I wanted to hear his take about what what went wrong, basically. Sure. And he, sure. And he was very forthcoming with uh, the problems that he had with Jaws 3D. But uh, in the course of our conversation, he uh, basically, uh, from what I gathered, was that it was on his insistence that they kept Jaws 2 in uh, on on the um, the um, uh, as as a go picture. I guess you would say because they were they were going to shut it down and he was pleading with them and uh, it was I, I according to what I was getting from him that it, it's it's uh, if it weren't for him it may not have happened long story short <laughs> yeah no that well pretty much that's right yeah because because they they shut it down and fired Hancock and then what what kind of happened is you know obviously they needed another director and they needed another director quickly. And who would that be? And pretty much if you can get, you know, most directors are not going to take on a big project like that with no preparation. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. uh, because a, a film like that can take eight months to prepare and you throw a director in there without, without a, doing at least a little of the prep work and the whole thing's going to fall apart and no director wants to be responsible for that. So it really became a question of, are we going to be able to get a director to, to keep this thing going? And if that basically, if they couldn't find one in a couple of weeks, then the movie was the plug was going to be pulled pretty much. And they went through a couple of, um, a couple of possibilities. I think they had looked at a, at some of the more, um, you know, sort of standard journeyman directors that might have been around at the time. I think Joe mentioned at one point they were even talking about like Otto Preminger or somebody. <laughs> but uh, but the most realistic um, uh, attempt at it was that uh, Verna Fields was the editor of, of the first Jaws, and she was a marvelous film editor. She had yes. worked on... Um, Sugarland Express, American Graffiti, mm -hmm. a lot of Peter Bogdanovich's early stuff. She's just one of those, one of the greats. Yes. And after Jaws, and she got a lot of credit for the success of Jaws, because obviously it's a wonderfully uh, cut picture. But, you know, Jaws had a very, um, you know, had a troubled, troubled production. And, and rightly or wrongly, and I think there's arguments on both sides, the, the story kind of went out this is prior to the film coming out, that it was in real trouble, that Spielberg had screwed it up, and that Verna Fields had come in and saved the day. It's kind of like these stories of uh, that they that you hear now from people who don't understand how movies are made, that Marsha <laughs> Lucas single-handedly saved Star Wars because George <coughs> Lucas had so screwed it up. I, I wish people would understand how movies were made before they repeat nonsense like that. Um, you know, uh, Spielberg and... and, and uh, Verna Fields worked very closely on the editing of Jaws. Um, but anyway, um, Universal was so impressed with her performance on Jaws that they made her a studio executive. She became a production executive at the studio in the aftermath of Jaws because um, she'd won her Oscar for cutting it. And so she actually had stopped being an ed editor, but she had always wanted to direct. Um, and um, so the idea came up that maybe... Verna Fields should direct the film. And that was met with some approval. The The thing is that Verna Fields, though, was um, a bit older at that point and also um, not to be unkind, but she wasn't in the best physical shape. So the idea was she probably wouldn't have been able to handle the strain of like shooting out on the ocean and all of that stuff because that was it was so rough. So what came up was this idea that Verna, Verna, Ver, sorry, Verna Fields mm -hmm. and um, Joe Alves would co-direct the picture. Basically, Verna directing, you know, all of the actors and, and the main action and stuff. And then um, Joe Alves handling a lot of the ocean stuff. Uh, and that became that they basically presented that to Universal as this is what we want to do. And Universal approved it. But then they when a when a director is fired off of a movie, you must get a waiver from the Directors Guild to replace that director. And there's a rule, um, it's known as the Clint Eastwood rule, mm -hmm. uh, off of a film called The Outlaw Josie Wales, where Clint Eastwood, who was also the producer of that film, um, fired the director, who was Phil Kaufman, a few weeks in and took over himself. Uh, and he is the credit director on Outlaw Josie Wales. And, and the rule the Directors Guild put in place after that 
was that nobody associated with the production could take over the direction of a film if you fired the director. And they did that so that producers wouldn't, you know, would fire directors and take over themselves and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the Directors Guild considered Verna Fields one of the producers since she was in, you know, in the in the production ranks at Universal. So they would not permit that plan to happen. So they again that fell apart and they were right back to where they were, which was we need a director or, or the head of the studio is going to pull the plug. Joe Alves um, had started his career as a production designer um, on, on the television series, Rod, uh, Rod Serling's night gallery, uh, which was a, a big uh, show in the late sixties and early seventies at that point. And he had worked on that show. A lot of U universal's contract directors Steven Spielberg being one of them, John Badham um, had worked on that show and Alves had worked with all of them. And that's kind of how he got to know Steven Spielberg originally. Um, and another director that had worked on uh, that show was a, a director named Genoz Zwark. And Genoz Zwark was a French director who had come to America in the early 60s and had started working at Universal and had become a television director and he was one of Universal's um, stable of highly regarded TV directors. He was he directed many, many episodes of many shows. He directed a lot of pilots and quite a few TV movies. Um, he had also directed a couple of low budget features, none of which got uh, a lot of attention. One of them was called um, Extreme Close Up, which was sort of a paranoia thriller with one of the first screenplays by Michael Crichton. Um, and then he had also directed a film called Bug, which uh, I, I think was called something else before Jaws came out. When Jaws came out, they changed the title to Bug. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think it was based on a book, The Hephaestus Plague or something like that's that. It. That's it. You're yeah. right. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. I'm a fan of that um, movie, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but it's uh, – but yeah. But so, you know, he was a journeyman TV director, basically. And but Joe Alves felt that he was uh, creative, that he was fast, and he thought he might be somebody that if they threw him in the deep end, you know, he wouldn't be overwhelmed by the fact that he didn't have a lot of preparation and stuff. So basically, it was Joe Alves recommending Geno's work, and uh, I guess he interviewed with um, Zanuck and Brown, and I'm sure all the studio executives too, and they gave him the script. And they asked him what he thought. And he said that he, you know, he liked a lot of the action that had been written, but he didn't really care for the characters and a lot of the, the gloomy tone and all that. So they asked him, well, how would you go about, you know, basically saving this movie? And his pl his plan, which he suggested to them, was he said, we should pick a major action sequence that's going to take a while to shoot. He goes, and and we should start shooting it. And while we're shooting it, um, we can rewrite the script and get it where it needs to be. And I can do, you know, as much of my preparation as I can do. Uh, and they like that idea. And I guess they liked enough of the footage of his TV work. So Jeannot's work was hired. So about, I think it was about two weeks after they shut down on Martha's Vineyard, uh, Jeannot's work showed up in Navarre Beach and he directed the film from then on. Yep. That, uh, 
That's an interesting trajectory there about how it went from uh, uh, John John D. Hancock all the way to you know, short. Yeah, yeah it's, it's 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 fascinating because it's one of those things where again the the story behind the movie is much more complicated and sometimes more has more twists and turns than the film itself. Oh, you know? yeah, sure, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. And now, I think an interesting aspect is about the uh, the sharks uh, that they had to build more sharks for the film. Uh, but they did use the uh, same body mold that they used for the shark in the first film. But uh, in just a couple of years, and it hadn't been that long at this point, I guess well, maybe a little over three years since the original had been shot, but those sharks were already rotting at that point, which uh, I guess um, you know, maybe the salt had done their damage on them or something. I don't know the salt oh, or something. but uh, Oh, yeah. No, that was, that was a huge thing. Like one of the problems... One of the reasons Jaws had so much trouble is they had designed all of the um, the mechanics in the sharks mm-hmm. and tested it all in fresh water, and it worked great in fresh water. Yeah. But for some reason, they didn't count on the fact that they were going to be shooting in salt water, and salt is famously corrosive. And mm-hmm. if you grow, if you spend any time near the water, you know it corrodes everything. And so, you know, the shark was basically a set of mechanics, hydraulic, well, not hydraulics, pneumatics, because they couldn't use hydraulics in in the ocean, Um, and uh, a bunch of mechanical elements, and then uh, basically a a foam rubber and polystyrene skin. So the skins were rotting almost as soon as they put them in the water, like the skins on the sharks had to be replaced many times during the shoot. And the the salt water was corroding all of the mechanics, so the sharks were always breaking down. Like somehow the story gets out, like that the sharks were sort of badly made and they were always breaking down. They were actually wonderfully engineered, mm-hmm. but you you know you good luck fighting with salt water. Um, so yeah, they basically had to build all new sharks for the film. Uh, and in Jaws, they had um, they actually had three. Uh, they had um, a full body shark, and then they had two sharks. One was open on its right side, and one was open on its left side. And the reason they did that was, um, you know, if you only needed a shark going by the camera at one angle, and you had one side of it open, made it a lot easier to do the repairs and to fix things. Uh, whereas when the full body shark was enclosed, you'd have to pull it out of the water and, you know, tear it apart and. So they used that one for some scenes, but they tried to use these side-by-side sharks. For Jaws 2, they did another full-body shark. Um, I do, don't believe they did the half-and-half half sharks. I don't think they did that. What they did do, though, is they had a shark called a sled shark. And the sled shark, um, the, if, if, if people don't know, the, the big mechanical shark from Jaws and Jaws 2 uh, was actually um, put on top of this mechanism. Basically, what it was was a big platform that could be sunk to the bottom of the ocean. It was sort of had inflatable, um, inflatable pontoons and things on it, so they could rise it up to the surface, but then also sink it to the bottom. And on this platform was a track, like a, a roller coaster track, um, but it was flat, and it had a, um, you know, a little a little carriage basically that rode on it. Uh, rode on the track and then the carriage had this big arm attached to it me- uh, metal arm and the and on top of at the very top of the metal arm was a little cradle and that's where the shark was put 
the platform would be sunk and then the arm was was used to move the shark along the surface as the little train ran along the track on the platform it, it was a very fascinating construct but a very complicated one and a very hard one to get to work so they came up in jaws 2 with what they call a sled shark which was a full body shark that they put on um on basically a sea sled and then they would drag it with a boat and that way they got a lot of shots of the shark swimming uh in full body without having to hook it up to the platform and that way they ended up having two sharks so when one was broken they could use the other kind of what they did on jaws but um but a little more streamlined i think this time around but you're correct they used the same molds um uh, that they had used to create the shark and jaws so they didn't have to sculpt the new shark they did make some modifications around its its actual jaws though um famously the shark and jaws has very pronounced jowls because where the where the um the top and bottom of the mouth were joined and they kind of did a they kind of did a rubber thing around around that so you didn't quite see the join as much in the new shark but it ended up making the shark have kind of a weird ovaly mouth when he opened his mouth so it looked a lot <laughs> from that point of view um and then to further distinguish the shark as anyone who's seen the film knows they have a sequence where uh he gets his face burned in the first couple of uh first couple of uh scenes and so now as as the final writer of the movie, Carl Gottlieb, said, we now had Scarface the shark. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's, um, yeah, they were known as, uh, the, the, obviously the shark in the original film known as Bruce, nicknamed yes. after Spielberg's lawyer, but they, they named these sharks Fidel and Harold, the latter after <laughs> David Brown's lawyer. So, uh, not to be outdone. Right, but, right. Uh, yeah, the uh, and then the cable junction thing at the end of the film, obviously that would have been very tough to try to have an, uh, a mechanical shark with a real island. So they, it was actually a floating barge, I understand, covered with fiberglass rocks, and uh, yeah, uh, they yeah, could, uh, enable that shark platform to be positioned as close as possible. Um, yeah, because the shark platform had to be on the flat bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Uh, in, otherwise, it would all upend itself. So yeah, you're right. When they when they wanted to do Cable Junction, they couldn't use a real island because mm -hmm. a real island obviously has a sloping uh, background. So yeah, it's it's actually two barges stuck together, and then they built fiberglass rocks and, and things on it. I actually think it's a pretty nifty piece of production design. It yeah. uh, it it kind of appears out of nowhere in the movie, but it's it looks really cool. So yeah, I, I totally agree. It. it uh... It, it does. Uh, it, it's totally convincing, if you ask me. It was to me as a child, and I w watched it again a couple of years ago, and I, I thought it still held up. Um, of course, the real shark footage is filmed by the Australian divers Ron and Valerie Taylor, who also did the same thing for the first film. So they came back and it did uh, did much of the same. If they needed, um, you know, shots of real sharks that couldn't convincingly be. Uh, portrayed by mechanical sharks so it, it, it's actually my understanding that they did not come back they just used more oh, of the footage that they had <laughs> shot yeah okay yeah that's yeah a... so i had always thought that they they did more i mean they get credited for it right, but sure. it's but it's it's the footage all from yeah, the original outtakes. The, yes the jaw the jaws shot but uh okay well yeah i was just assuming that they were brought back because of the credit but okay yeah yeah that yeah, makes yeah. Sense. 
Yeah. And um, so they, yeah, they filmed down there for a long time. Uh, and like Jaws, it went very far over schedule because, you know, the big problem in Jaws was they had to coordinate the, the boat, the orca and the shark. And they had to get them set up for each shot and then had to take into account tides and and currents and boats in the background. So it was very hard to coordinate that. Well, on Jaws 2, they decided to make it easy on themselves by having like 10 sailboats <laughs> that they had to coordinate uh, with the shark. So, of course, everything took 10 times longer and, and they were still working on the ocean it was warmer than um, than certainly than Martha's Vineyard, okay, but they yeah. were still yes yeah, still out on the ocean every day, uh, so it just took forever. And uh, Jaws famously was budgeted at four million dollars, and went double its budget, uh, came in at eight million dollars. Jaws two, I believe, started at twelve million and ultimately ended up costing twenty eight million dollars, which at the time was the single most expensive movie in Universal Studios history. And I think, I might be wrong about this, but I think also the, the, the most expensive movie of all time uh, at that time. Uh, and that was a weird period where, um, you know, movies in those days, just regular films with uh, actors and no special effects, the average movie cost about $3 million to make. And if you were doing... Um, Anything with big action and special effects, you were probably talking somewhere between three million, three million and maybe seven million. Uh, and and but you had a weird period there where when um, uh, Dino De Laurentiis did his King Kong, that film cost twenty five million dollars, which at the time was the most expensive film ever. And then in the next bunch of years that followed, you just had one most expensive movie of all time ever after another. So, and Jaws was one of those and it all culminated, you know, in 1980 with Heaven's Gate, which was $40 million or $45 million, which at that time was, was astronomical. Uh, so it, it was a weird time where movies were just running over schedule and costing a lot. And Jaws two was no exception to that. Um, so I'm trying to think, Oh, the other, uh, Obviously, the cast. I guess we should talk about the cast. Um, yeah, I, I was uh, yeah. surprised, uh, not to interrupt, but I was surprised I, a yeah. couple of weeks ago there was a podcast with Lorraine Gary, and she said that she didn't get a, get along very well with Roy Scheider, so I was just going to mention it, that. that she, she, yeah. <laughs> not a good they working did not. relationship. <laughs> it, it was not. I my I, she I, I'd like to listen. I haven't heard that podcast, but um, I don't know if they got along well on the first film. But I know they got along not at all on the second film. Right. Um, and my understanding is basically Roy Scheider got along with nobody on the second film. Um, <laughs> he, he they you know Robert Shaw obviously his character was killed off, so they weren't going to bring back Quint. They did approach Richard Dreyfuss early on, and he said he didn't want anything to do with it. And Roy Scheider didn't want to do it either. Um, again, with the idea that sequels were not considered, um, you know, classy business in those days. And what happened is Scheider, Scheider had an interesting career right after Jaws because he had, he had been a very dependable character actor before that, supporting actor. Um, and then he went in, I think his next film after Jaws was Marathon Man. Mm -hmm. So he was sort of back in supporting character territory. And then he had um, 
He had starred in uh, Wayne Friedkin's Sorcerer, which was another one of those runaway productions that ended up costing much more than it was budgeted for. And um, I, I, my understanding, I'm, you know, it's hard to know from the distance of time, but uh, he was a fairly difficult on that film from, from what I understand. Uh, and then um, he, he agreed to star in The Deer Hunter, uh, for, and that was a universal picture that Michael Cimino was going to direct. And for some reason, he fell out of the deer hunter. I don't know whether he had arguments with Cimino, but there was some reason he left the deer hunter. And I, my understanding is that he quit the deer hunter rather than, you know, it wasn't mutual, you know, creative differences and he wasn't fired. He quit it. Well, of course, he was breaking his contract. And I guess what Universal did was they said, well, if you're going to break your contract on the Deer Hunter, then we're going to we're going to make you fulfill it on Jaws 2, which he did, which he did not want to do. Um, so he was unhappy about being there, although my understanding was he had owed them two two films, Deer Hunter and another one. And they they did sweeten the pot and said, if you do Jaws 2, we'll will basically put the two pictures together and that will satisfy your obligation to us. So he was pretty much forced into doing it. And I guess just made his displeasure uh, known to everyone. Um, he fought quite a bit with Jeannot's work. Uh, he, he was pretty difficult with Lorraine Gary. Um, and famously he and Janos Wark apparently got into a fist fight at one point on, on the set. Uh, <laughs> and, and he was a former that, boxer. Well, <laughs> he was a former boxer. Yeah. <laughs> that could have been uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that, and Janot, Janot downplays it now, but I've, I've heard that from more than one oh, person nice. that, that they got into it. And, um, the other thing that, uh, this almost makes me laugh, but Roy Scheider was a guy who liked to have a suntan. Oh, yeah. And uh, I guess even on Jaws, he, he liked laying out with his reflector and getting a suntan. But on Jaws, too, he, he was apparently working overtime on the tan, so much so that his skin started to not match from shot to shot. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah, famously, when you do action movies, sometimes you shoot one piece and then you don't shoot another piece till like two months later. Oh, yeah. And he. And the production, I, I don't know if it was the producers or whoever, but I know the editor was trying to put scenes together and he was pointing out to Jeannot and to the producers, you know, Roy's not matching <laughs> from shot mm -hmm. to shot. So they went to Scheider and said, hey, can you lay off the tanning? And I guess uh, Scheider's response was to tan even more. <laughs> so <it> was, <laughs> and there's a there's a shot. There's a there's a bit in the film where. Uh, he loads a bunch of bullets with cyanide because uh, the idea being that he's he's going to shoot the shark with cyanide bullets if he sees one. Uh, and and there's a lot of close ups of his hand. And apparently he didn't do the inserts. The editor used his own hands and he had to put a lot of skin bronzer on just to make <laughs> sure that he matched Roy Scheider's tan. <laughs> so, That's good. Yeah, so Roy was not a happy camper. Uh, during the making of that, and he made people's lives pretty miserable. Um, and and it's an interesting thing if you if you watch the films back to back. And I I I think this was kind of an actor thing. In Jaws, Roy Scheider is playing Chief Brody. In Jaws Two, I think Roy Scheider is playing Roy Scheider, because because 
Chief Brody's kind of a likable guy. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 Chief Brody in Jaws 2 is kind of a jerk. <laughs> yeah. He's, kind of, he's a yeah. little bit sarcastic and he's not very pleasant and and I I think he wasn't playing the character that he was playing in the first movie. Mm-hmm. I you know, he's not here for any more for us to ask, but I I wonder what his thoughts on that would have been, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh yeah. Yeah. And yet he, you know, as uh, people that actually had some interaction with him in later years speak highly of him. I know our mutual friend Michael McCormick interviewed him for his documentary. Yeah, uh, the shark is still not working, and he um, uh, had nothing but good things to say about him. And I have uh, talked to a couple of other people who had some run-ins with him, and they spoke highly of him as well. So I don't know. Maybe he just, uh, maybe as he got older, you know, he kind of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I also my understanding is um, I think he even says it uh, perhaps in in that documentary, but mm-hmm. he apparently uh, came to be very mellow about Jaws too after a while. Like I yeah. guess he he didn't badmouth it in right. later yeah. years. I think he was going through a rough period because I I do think that was a period where um, and and as you would expect from a guy who had starred in the highest grossing movie of all time. I think he thought he was going to be a leading man and it didn't quite pan out. And I think he was in a bad mood and I don't know what happened on, on the deer hunter, but like, I think he was just probably in a pretty low place. Interestingly enough, after jaws two, he, he was a leading man in one of the best performances you're ever going to see. in one of the best movies you're ever going to see, which is all that jazz. Yeah. Yeah, So, yeah. yeah, So he bounced back from whatever was going on with him in, in, in Jaws too, but but it, I still get amused watching him because uh, you know Sheriff Brody wears glasses, uh, Roy Scheider doesn't, and like there's no like I don't know, he's just a different guy in Jaws yeah. too. But uh, but he you know he comes through at the end, which is what you want him to do. Yeah, um, yeah, and the other cast, uh, Lorraine Gary obviously came back, and that was some controversy uh, between. Um, uh, between the production team and Universal, because for those who don't know, Lorraine Gary was Sid Sheinberg's wife, and he was the head of Universal and MCA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when they were making Jaws, at that time, Richard Zanuck was married to an actress named Linda Harrison, who uh, uh, people of a certain age will know as Nova from the Planet of the Apes series. Uh, and I guess at one point, uh, Richard Zanuck really wanted Linda Harrison to play uh, Chief Brody's wife, and for whatever reasons, that didn't happen, and Sid Sheinberg's wife played Chief Brody's wife, uh, and did a great job, no no, no complaints there. Uh, and so when, when they came back to do Jaws 2, one of the things that was uh, Lorraine Gary, obviously, she wanted a bigger part, and I guess Zanuck and, was not didn't necessarily want her to have a bigger part. So there was a lot of back and forth there. Um, and Zanuck still wanted his wife in the movie. So there's a scene where uh, Chief Brody talks to an, um, uh, I'm not sure if it's an ocean, ocean uh, uh, well, a, a, a whale specialist, I guess, um, when they find a beached whale uh, in the film. And it's a female scientist. Originally, that part was written for Linda Harrison. And whatever behind the scenes, you know, politics happened. Linda Harrison obviously did not end up playing that part. It was ended up playing by an actress named Colin Wilcox. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's uh, 
Yeah, that's quite curious too. And that's a story yeah. I didn't know. So yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, there, there's a lot of that going on mm-hmm. on the film. Um, yeah. Also, I uh, wanted to say, you yeah. know, before we move too far away from yeah. the Rory Scheider thing, it's funny how he and uh, Richard Dreyfuss were kind of intertwined because they, you know, obviously were in Jaws together, and then he wound up yep. replacing him on all that jazz because he Richard Dreyfuss was uh, cast, you know, in the part that eventually went to Roy Scheider. So that's kind yeah. of funny the uh, the symmetry yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't they weren't getting away from one another. That's, that's sure. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although Roy Scheider looks so much like Bob Fosse in that picture that you wonder how they would have cast anyone else in oh, the first place. I but that imagine. is how things go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I can't imagine. Totally different yeah. film. Uh, and uh, let's see who else. Well, they brought Jeffrey Kramer yes. back as as the as the deputy Hendrix. And there's an interesting story there, too, because apparently John Hancock, the first director, did not like Jeffrey Kramer. Uh, so they include a character in the script. It's kind of weird. In, in the, if you read the Dorothy Tristan draft of Jaws 2, there are two deputies. One is Hendrix, which is the character that uh, Jeff Kramer uh, played. And, and I forget the name of the other deputy, but there were two deputies. And they cast as, as the main deputy who was named Hendrix. They didn't cast Jeffrey Kramer as Hendrix. They cast Tom Roski. And, and for those who don't know, um, Tom Roski is the guy who played Rocco Lampone in The Godfather, mm-hmm. Godfather 1 and 2. He's the guy who kills Hyman Roth at the end of Godfather 2 and who kills um, – uh, uh, sh- who does he – um, I'm blanking. I'm sorry. He commits one of the – oh, he's the guy who kills uh, – I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it happens. The guy, in the, happens. the guy in the car. Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, Paulie Gatto. I'm so sorry. Um, anyway, he was cast as the deputy, and they shot for the three weeks with him. And, and I guess Jeffrey Kramer was offered the part, not of Hendrix, but of whoever the second deputy was. But he was so irritated that they took away his part uh, that he quit. He said, I don't want to do the movie. So he was not in the film. And then um, when when Janos Wark took over, he said, well, what happened to the guy who played the deputy in the first movie? I like that guy. So they they brought the Tom Roski left the film and they brought um, they brought Jeffrey Kramer back. And what's interesting is Jeffrey Kramer went on to become a, a pretty well respected producer in television. And he and, uh, and uh, Geno's work have worked together pretty much ever since that film, but as you know, as producers rather than as, as director and actors. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So he was he came back for the film, and then obviously, and there was an interesting that the the original draft by by Howard Sackler had a couple of other elements in it, and one of the elements was uh, originally Quint's son shows up. Wanting his father's reward money for cat for um, for for killing the shark, and that that ended up causing there was all sorts of intrigue that developed out of that. That idea got dropped, and then they came up with a character who uh, I'm not clear exactly who the character was, but he was some kind of promoter who had come to the town to exploit. The, the shark legend, right? He was going to turn the, the town into, you know, this is the town where the horror happened or something like that. And that, that character was gotten rid of. And, but they ended up with a character of a real estate developer who was 
trying to bring the town back after after everything that had happened, because one of the things they wanted to do is they needed somebody to oppose Chief Brody and they couldn't do it with the mayor character anymore because after everything that had happened in Jaws, it wasn't believable that the mayor would ever not take Chief Brody's side against things anymore since he had been proven right. Uh, so they kept the mayor in the movie, but they brought in this new character to be so influential with the town that he was essentially the mayor so that when Roy Scheider starts to talk about sharks, he's the guy who opposes them. Originally, that part was cast with a very well-known character actor named Dana Elkar, uh, who had appeared in the MacGyver TV series. And he's in actually he's in 2010 with Roy Scheider. Um, and, and he's one of those faces that everybody knows, even if you don't know his name. Uh, and he was cast in that part. But when the film, when Janos Wark took over, they rewrote the character not only to have him be sort of this influential uh, mucky muck in the town, but they wanted to kind of create a romantic jealousy thing where he was this sort of handsome, good looking guy. And maybe Chief Brody's wife was going to be attracted to him. Uh, and that whole plot didn't really pan out. But they ended up casting an actor named uh, Joseph Mascalo, who was known. He played a lot of like uh, he would play DAs and cops and criminals and lots of TV shows and movies and and soap operas back then so he became he became sort of the villain of the piece if you will even though most of those elements were ultimately dropped in in the rewrites uh so yeah so that 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 was the adult cast and then uh they had obviously a lot of teen actors in the film the most notable ones let's see keith gordon who later became a, a a director after starring in a couple of good Brian, uh, Brian De Palma and John Carpenter films. Uh, he's in the cast. Uh, uh, this, let's see who else. Uh, Donna Wilkes, who later went on to do the, the angel uh, angel was her, her famous movie. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. remember that. <laughs> yeah. And what was the TV show? You'll know he, she was in hello, Larry. Wasn't she? Oh, that's wasn't correct. That, that, that was hers. Uh, and Dusenberry, who was one of the last of the Universal contract players, um, who did a lot of small parts in movies in those days and ended up, uh, interestingly enough, in Lucille Ball's final television series, Life with Lucy. She played. <laughs> How she could played, we get that? <laughs> I know. See, the, 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 the strange trivia that exists back there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to blank on the name, but there's a there's a character actor in oh uh, uh Billy Van Zandt, oh, Steven Zandt's yes. brother, yeah, little little Steven's brother, yes. who has become a writer and television producer. Mm-hmm. He's he's in the film, um, and then a bunch of folks, uh, uh, John Dukakis, the the uh, uh, Michael Dukakis, the the governor of of uh, Massachusetts, who ran for <laughs> who ran for president. His son John Dukakis is in the film. Uh, so it's a bunch of interesting character actors. A, a character actor named Gigi Vorgan, who uh, was is the cousin of a good friend of mine. <laughs> so she's in that film. Uh, so and and oh, I should mention this: um, uh, the character of Sean, the youngest of the Brody children, in the original cast was played by Ricky Schroeder. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, and then he was replaced when they moved to Florida with an actor named Mark Gilpin. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, oh, and uh, we should mention Gary Springer played the uh, 
the uh, but best friend Andy, I think, was his name in the film. And he's he was had a very small part in Dog Day Afternoon, very memorable small part in Dog mm-hmm. Day Afternoon. He's the getaway driver who runs away right, right at the yeah. start of the movie. Yeah, so so they had they had a good cast of of young actors in the film, and uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure what else to say about the cast. Uh, <laughs> none of them not needed to get suntans the way the way Roy Scheider did. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so well, the cinematography was by Michael Butler, who mm-hmm. I don't think he's related to Bill Butler from the, who shot the original. I don't think there's any relation mm-hmm. there, but I thought he did. No. A, a fairly good job with the uh, the lensing of the picture. Uh, yeah, it's it's a nice looking film. Uh, Michael Butler is actually the son of Larry Butler, who is one of the more famous pioneers of visual effects in films. He started and he actually did a lot of the effects work on um, Things to Come and and mm-hmm. science fiction. And I was still working as far as up until uh, Maroon, he was still doing work. Uh, so, yeah, he and his brother David was the DP on the second unit on Jaws, too. So it was a, a Butler family production, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, and, of course, we had the return of John Williams, a very busy year for John Williams, I, I might uh, add, because uh, he not, that same calendar year he did um, – uh, the Fury for Brian De Palma, and yeah. he did Superman the movie, and I I may be missing one. I'm thinking uh, there's another 1978 score he did. I can't remember, but uh, I know he did Dracula immediately after uh, Superman. I think. Uh, yes. John yeah, Adams. Yeah. So anyway, very busy, and so he returned to score Jaws 2 after he obviously won the Academy Award for the best original score for the original film, and uh, I think it's one of his most underrated scores i think uh, it's it's great how he weaves in new themes with some of the pre-existing themes that he used for the original film and it's it's a good mesh of you know recycling but also adding some new stuff and uh i uh i'm quite a fan of that score yeah it's it's actually it's it's a very lush score yes. um which i really like about it and 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 what's so interesting is he he, re, he actually didn't reuse all that much. He like sort of yeah, it's all in the same style. Yeah. Yeah. But the Jaws theme itself, the the you know famous dun 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 dun, mm-hmm. is is used very rarely in the film. It's used in the beginning, and it's reprised in bits and pieces in the end. But he never fully plays it the way he did in the first film, and I think that's kind of extraordinary. Like he really was determined to do something entirely new. Mm-hmm. Um, he re- he retains some of some of the orca theme, some of the amity theme, but not a lot of it. So I I think he was determined not to repeat himself. Although there's a there's a interesting bit which if I if I ever get the chance to talk to him, I want to ask him about um, the film he had. Uh, well, he probably did other things in between, but uh, the biggest film he had done right before that, he had obviously scored Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you listen carefully in some of the action music at the it, when the shark is attacking the kids at the very end of the movie, he suddenly starts using passages from the Close Encounters score, <laughs> um, where, where it goes da 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 da. It's it's all in there, and I don't know whether it was just he was writing so much music he just forgot, 
or yeah. whether that was a deliberate nod. I'm not really sure, but it is unmistakable when you listen to the score. So, uh, yeah, but but a terrific piece, as as always with Mr. Williams, you know. Oh, yeah, but he was on a roll there. I mean, he's, he's always great, uh, you know, but even uh, with lesser films, he still turns in stellar work. But he, just an amazing run there from uh, Star mm. Wars until uh, – the John Badham Dracula, just uh, yeah, amazing. yeah, and the Fury, the score he did for the Fury for Brian De Palma's The Fury is just ah, uh, uh, I just yeah. love it, love it, love it. Well, if if you track from Jaws to and then 1980, he he does Empire Strikes Back, like it's well, just too, the most yeah. amazing run of scores. Yeah, know? 1941. So, how could I forget they, that? Yes, exactly. So that's another great one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a wonderful score actually. That picture. So, that was that was a golden age for so many of those those filmmakers, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. yeah, and um, I don't know what else should we. Oh, I well maybe we should talk about some of the individual sequences because I I think with Jaws, Jaws two has a big story problem that they were never really able to solve. Mm-hmm. And and first of all the. Of course, you know, the fact that there's a second shark that attacks Amity Island, you have to really put your your um, your your credibility on hold in order to make that work. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's interesting is that the original idea and uh, Jaws 2 has a very interesting novelization because the novelization, which was written by a writer named Hank Searles, was based on the Dorothy Tristan draft of the script. And if you read the novelization and then you watch the movie, the the broad strokes are the same, but many, many, many of the details are different. And that's because it's actually not based on the screenplay they shot the movie on. Uh, You know, famously novelizations will include things that aren't in the movie because they usually use the early drafts of things. But very rarely has one been so completely different as this. Mm -hmm. And we we should probably add that after Jeannot's work took over, they brought Carl Gottlieb back, the guy who had written the shooting draft for Jaws, who turned down the assignment. And Carl Gottlieb wrote the shooting uh, script for Jaws too, uh, and and he's really the guy responsible for for most of what ends up uh, in the final version of the film. But the original idea, which is in the novelization, is that the shark that attacks uh, this in the second film is a female shark, and the idea was supposed to be that it, that that shark had been swimming in the waters off Amity when the first shark showed up and impregnated that shark. And I guess sharks, if, if I remember the details, take a couple of years to gestate. I'm not sure if that's completely accurate or not, but it's a, <laughs> that's what I remember from the novelization. And the idea being that the shark had returned to those waters to give birth. And, and at the very end of the film, in the, in, the, in the early drafts of the script, right before the shark dies, it gives birth to another shark, to a baby shark, and of course, you know, setting up what might have been a Jaws 3. All of that was gotten rid of. It might have even been gone by the time Dorothy Tristan, by the time they did the shooting draft for, for the first version. Mm-hmm. But but that was the original idea. And when that was, um, when that all of that fell out, basically you're just left with this coincidence, which is, oh, a second abnormally large great white shark shows up in the waters off the island there's a little suggestion in the scene with the scientists 
where Roy Scheider says something like, if a shark gets killed, do you think another shark would come back? And the scientist says, sharks don't take things personally, Mr. Brody. And that's only funny if you know the plot of Jaws the Revenge, where the shark did take it personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <This laughs> and did come it's personal. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Said, yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so so that that whole plot changed. And uh, I'm blanking on what I what my point was going to be, so I apologize for that. Well, no, no, no. All that's yeah. interesting. It, it's it's yeah. very interesting. Um, and you know, I remember picking that. I remember having a copy of that uh, paperback novelization. But I, you know, I turned eight that summer that it came out. But I yeah. never read it. You know, I wasn't. You know, reading novels seemed like a lot of work to me when I was eight years old. I I didn't sure. get to appreciate that until I was a little older. And I never got around to reading that. So I, mm. you just um, made me think about that. I thought, I need to pick up a copy of that and uh, go and read that because I bet that would be an interesting read uh, at the very least. It, it, it's kind of fascinating. I, had a, I have a funny story about the novelization, which is that um, uh, about six months before the movie came out, the New York Times, they had a, the Sunday paper, the, they had the book review, and they had a little coupon and it said, we're looking for people to read um, the novelization of Jaws 2 before it comes out to sort of give opinions or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not even really sure what. Anyway, they were giving out review copies of it. And back then, I had uh, clipped out a coupon when uh, Paramount put a poster of the 76 King Kong in the New York Times. And I got myself a color poster. And then the next year, they did Orca. You got a poster of that. So I was in the habit of clipping coupons in the New York Times and sending them in because I didn't know what I was going to get. And I ended up getting a review copy of Jaws 2. And I read it. And I, I liked it quite a bit. And when I first saw the movie, I was really disappointed because I was expecting the story in the in the book. And it turned out to be completely different. <laughs> so, I, so so I had to see the movie again a couple of times before I could take it on its own terms, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah. And well, oh, I know what, what I was referring to before. The big story problem that Jaws 2 has is that in, in Jaws, you know, except for a little mystery at the beginning, like what what killed the girl and what killed the boy, you you learn very quickly there's a shark in the water and they have to stop the shark. So the whole movie is we know there's a shark and we're going to kill it. Jaws 2's big problem is that it's based on the idea that nobody knows there's a shark out there and everybody thinks Sheriff Brody's crazy, that he's just overreacting because of what had happened in the first film, which works if you don't show us the shark. But yeah. because we, the audience, knows there's a shark, it creates that problem Hitchcock always used to talk about. You can't let your audience get too far ahead of you. And the problem is the audience knows from the first scene of Jaws 2 that there's a shark out there. And the characters don't. Roy Scheider doesn't find out there's a shark out there until 10 minutes before the movie ends. <laughs> and, and because of that, it, it, it lacks a whole lot of the sort of the suspense and forward momentum. And as good as, I mean, I think Jeannot's Wark He's clearly not Steven Spielberg, but he did a pretty good job of putting the movie together in terms of shooting what he needed to and creating action scenes. But the movie never quite has the punch of Jaws, I think, for that reason, because the audience is just always ahead of the characters in the movie, which is which is the script problem, not a not not a director's problem. You know, I agree. Uh, Yeah. 
I, I could not agree more. And, um, yeah, I mean, there was so much suspense in the original film. It, it, you know, Spielberg's command of the medium of film, he, he does such a great job milking the suspense. And, you know, some of it was out of necessity because the shark wouldn't work. Yeah. Uh, for obvious reasons, and so there—that is, you—you you, you don't really have that sense of suspense. So I guess you—you you can't go back once once the toothpaste is out of the tube, so to speak. You can't go back and really uh, redo that. So I guess their approach of just coming right out and showing the shark as much as possible yeah. was a, was as, uh, the probably the best approach, I would think. Uh, yeah. In terms of what they chose to do, uh, and of course the uh, the promotion was in full swing in the summer of 1978. I remember it quite well. I remember <laughs> picking up some of the tabloids. I remember the Star had this this uh, uh, there was like a multi page spread on Jaws two was coming out, and I got my mom to pick up one of those at, a, at the local grocery store, and then. Uh, of course, it was released in mid-June, but there were some sneak previews at 31 theaters across the U.S. starting on June 2nd. Uh, one of them in your, uh, in, in, yeah, I guess in your neck of the woods, Lowe's State 2 in New York City. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. have one up there. Um, and then um, I remember it playing in, in my neck of the woods not long after. Uh, and then, of course, on home video, MCA Home Video, which was then known as MCA Video Cassette Incorporated, they released it, <laughs> they released yeah. it on uh, VHS, Betamax, and Laserdisc, which was an, uh, a, a, a format in its infancy. And then sure. in yeah, 1980, it got a theatrical re-release, which added more money to the, uh, the, uh, the original uh, grosses. And it actually surpassed the 100 million mark with reissues, ultimately earning 102, almost 103 in America, or in the North America rather, and then 200 and, 208, uh, 900 in worldwide. So not bad, okay. you know, for the uh, mm -hmm. expenditure for of 30 million actually uh, turned out to be uh, a yeah, wise decision. Added. Yeah, well, it's it. I believe that until Empire Strikes Back, it was the most successful sequel financially um, ever made. So mm -hmm. they, it, it was very expensive, but they did well with it. Obviously, it didn't do as well as Jaws, but nothing was ever going to do as well as Jaws. So, and, and that was also the pattern in those days. Sequels were not expected to make as much yeah, as the originals. Right. Yeah, that that's not the case now, but uh, mm -hmm. it also we would be remiss if we didn't mention arguably the best um, movie tagline of all time. <laughs> you know, just when you you thought it was safe to go back in the water. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. very much <laughs> so. You... There, I remember actually there was a uh, a studio group by the name of Flyer, and they did a disco version of uh, the themes <laughs> from Jaws too, which uh, I. It got some local airplay on some of the uh, the AM top forty stations in in my area in the Charlotte area. Uh, I remember hearing it on the radio, and my dad actually picking up a copy of it and bringing it home. And so we, I remember that summer, uh, my dad playing that forty five, and uh, I'll probably include that as we uh, on the uh, as at, in the post. Uh, sequence here as i do, sure. do the editing at the <laughs> i hope you do because i'm totally unfamiliar with that i can't yes wait to hear i will it. Uh, yeah. yeah it was actually on the mca label too yeah so oh, awesome. uh, so yeah awesome. they I, I, but it was a studio group of some sort i'm not sure but it, it didn't really chart i i've checked the uh 
the Billboard charts and it didn't even make the Hot 100. And I, I don't really know why. It's an, it's an interesting uh, mesh of some of the different themes. It has the uh, the theme where they're out there sailing the da 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 da. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a popular thing in those days, starting with I guess the, yeah. the Star Wars mashup. So I, I guess I guess everyone wanted to get their themes out there, but uh, yeah. good good ones to put out for sure. You know. Yeah, and of course the reviews were kind of uh, you know hit and miss. Roger Ebert uh, famously calling it pure trash, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gene that... Siskel was a little more forgiving, two and a half stars. Uh, you know, he said uh, when the lead player's on camera, it's worth watching, uh, but when the teenage <laughs> characters are not being attacked, and uh, and that uh, when the teenagers were not being attacked, uh, that was about the uh, only thing worth watching. <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, yeah, I think I mangled that what, what I was trying to say there. But anyway, maybe maybe my meaning will be con. Uh, somebody anybody listening will figure out what i was trying to say sure, so anyway sure. but yeah vincent can be uh he was kind of lukewarm on it as well so yeah um it uh, uh didn't get the critical reception that the first film did but we weren't really expecting that i don't think anybody was and uh like i said it's uh but it was only downhill from there as we all know jaws 3d uh even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well, they... Jaws two at least was, I think, a very um, handsomely produced yes. film, and, and I think Zwark pulled it off about as good as you could expect. It was his choice to show the shark as much as he did, and I think a good argument could be made that it's it's seen too much. Uh, I think you know, but you know, I understand his reason, which he felt like what you just said, right? Which is you know once once people know what the shark looked like they really just wanted to see more shark mm -hmm. so he he kind of gave them what they wanted um but it was it was a full like it's a real movie i think starting with jaws 3d the, clearly they were starting to make it you know more cheap and things you know containing the locations and things like that and it just you know it just and the the plots obviously had to start getting even hokier and it just it just didn't work after that. John, Spielberg had a famous um, a famous quote once, which is he's because uh, something that I didn't mention was when John Hancock was fired. Apparently, Steven Spielberg had contacted the producers and said, "I will I will direct the film if you wait until I'm done with Close Encounters." And they did not were not able to wait because it would have they would have had to put the movie on hold for almost mm -hmm. a year. And um, but then he later said, but I decided after making the offer that I wouldn't do it. He said, because I determined that Jaws was not an anthology event um, and meaning mm -hmm. you couldn't you couldn't tell endless Jaws stories. And I think the Jaws sequels pretty much prove that. So, yeah. I think they would have done better had they gone the comedy route like they were thinking about with the, I think it was either Joe, was it John Landis or Joe Dante? I believe it was Joe Dante who was. Uh, Joe, Joe Dante was supposed to direct and the script was by John Hughes. Yeah, that's right. It was a yeah. Jaws 3 People Zero. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> which would have been the, probably the logical way to go after uh, Jaws 2 because you were, you know, you were lucky that, um, that Jaws 2 didn't get didn't get the critical drubbing that it could have. Like I said, it was a lukewarm reception, but but it could have been worse. And so I think the only way to go after that would have been uh, the the humorous route. But they chose not to do that, as we famously know. So oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, of course there was a uh, 
soundtrack album released, which only contained 41 minutes of the film's 101-minute score, I might add, which thankfully Trotta... Yeah, they yes. they uh, they they limit, released a limited edition CD of that in 2015, which you I think it's out of print now. But if you if you can get your hands on that, it's it's great because it contains the complete score in its entirety uh, in chronological order. So yes, uh, it's yeah. worth having. And then there was the Jaws 2 log, which is uh, a, a you know the the first film had Carl Gottlieb wrote the uh, the Jaws log, which is one of the most famous books about the production of a film, the behind the scenes goings on, and so they tried to redo that as well with a Jaws two log, which I did have one of those around at one yep, point. I it, think it's it's sitting right here in front of me yeah, as we're talking. I think so I've yeah, got one too. And then there and was that, a, yeah that was so. written by Ray Lond, who was an L.A. Times um, entertainment reporter, yeah, and I believe was. I don't know if he was the publicist on the film, but he he had something to do with the publicity of the movie. I'll only say this about that to make it quick, but one of the cool things about the making of books from that era is they didn't hide anything. Like they talk all about John Hancock getting fired and why he was fired. And <laughs> like that, now you'd never see that. Oh no! Days. But it's so it's nowhere near as it's not the primer on filmmaking that Carl Gottlieb's Jaws log is, but it's a very interesting read. Oh yeah, the dirt's there. You're right, and it's not a whitewashed uh, thing, uh, you know. And I, I totally agree. That's because uh, I've got the one on The Exorcist too, The Heretic. Yes, and, uh, that's another one of those. It's yeah. a good read. It's it's yeah. it's a very, very good read. So uh, it kind of gives you some insight as to what what went wrong there as well. But that's that's a whole other story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> another another time. <laughs> yes, another time. Well, this has been great. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed it as always, and it's it's always great to have you on. And we could just go on and on about this, but we'll. Uh, I think we've said uh, quite a mouthful about Jaws too, and it does. You know, it was a. It was a pop cultural event that needs to be recognized as such in uh, the in those long ago days when we had events that united us as a human cult as a as a human race and as a culture I guess you would say uh, yep. we could all we all saw the same films or most of us did and listened to the same music we could all talk about the same things saw the same television shows read the same books we could all have the a conversation we all knew what each other was talking about and we we are so far from those days as we sit here in 2024 and it's kind of sad when i think about that um and so uh but those those were uh different times indeed and uh yeah. it's always worth uh, going back and looking at uh, things and uh you know how those kind of films came to be that we remember so fondly <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. No, well, hopefully we bring bring a little bit of it back as we have these conversations, yeah, which a, which I always enjoy. So I appreciate same. you bringing me back. Yeah. Mm-hmm.